I read a story this week. You know, um, uh, this time of year, you hear all kinds of stories, but this one I thought was a pretty good one. Um, uh, a little boy went to his mother demanding a new bicycle for Christmas, and his mother decided that she should take a look that he should take a look at himself and the way he acts. So she said, "Well, Johnny, it isn't Christmas, and uh, it, and we don't have the money to just go out and buy you anything you want. So why don't you write a letter to Jesus and pray for one instead?" After his temper tantrum, his mother sent him to his room. He finally sat down to write a letter to Jesus. Dear Jesus, I've been a good boy this year and would appreciate a new bicycle. Your friend, little Johnny. Now, little Johnny knew that Jesus really knew what kind of boy he was, and so he ripped up the letter and decided to give it another try. Dear Jesus, I've been an okay boy this year and I want a new bicycle. Yours truly, little Johnny. Well, little Johnny knew he wasn't totally honest, so he tore it up and tried again. Dear Jesus, I've thought about being a good boy this year and can I have a new bicycle? Signed, Little Johnny. Well, Little Johnny looked deep down in his heart, which, by the way, was what his mother was really wanting, and he crumpled up the letter and threw it in the trash can and went running outside. He aimlessly wandered about, and he was depressed because of the way he treated his parents and really considering his actions. He finally found himself in front of a Catholic church. So Little Johnny went inside and knelt down and looking around, not knowing what he should really do, Little Johnny finally got up and began to walk out the door and was looking at all the statues. All of a sudden, he grabbed a small one, and ran out the door, and he went home and hid it under his bed and wrote this letter. Jesus, I've broken most of the Ten Commandments, shot spit wads in school, tore up my sister's Barbie doll, and lots more. I'm desperate. I've got your mama. If you ever want to see her again, <laughs> give me a bite. <laughs> Signed, you know who. Yeah. <laughs> you ever felt that way? Well, okay. <laughs> Go with me to Luke 2. I love this story, you know, and I'm hoping that you do. Now, I want us to dial in for the next few minutes to the concept and the idea, and it's never more important than this season of the year, the idea of wonder. The idea of wonder. Okay? Okay. Uh, I guess I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a little bit on the edge when I say, to a degree, I don't even mind the Santa Claus experience if it causes children to wonder at this time of year. Now, I want them to wonder about the right things. And we're going to look at a story today that is 2,000 years old that should cause us to wonder. All right? Um, I, I think it's really important. Lots of things in our world are fantastic, okay? You can watch um, uh, Russell Westbrook do some of the things he does, and you think, man, that's fantastic. You can um, uh, look at um, uh, some things that people do, or maybe look at a building that, that Fred Quinn designs and look at it and say, wow, that's fantastic. Uh, you can look at some... Um, uh, Hopefully tonight at, at uh, 6.30, shameless plug, um, uh, we'll be doing a bunch of music around here. And, and hopefully you'll say, that's fantastic. But there are very few things in our world that bear the moniker wonderful. Uh, they're such that it causes uh, me to drop the jaw. Unexplainable. Hard to comprehend. Well, the story of Christmas fits that wonderful category. Um, 
Our lesson today is part of a much larger story of Jesus' conception and birth in the first two chapters of Luke. Um, Luke tells it kind of uh, uh, completely but quickly. Um, it begins, this whole Christmas story begins with the conception of John the Baptist in Luke 1. And it continues then in Luke 2 with the birth of the Christ child. Um, both children were, had a miraculous birth. But the birth of Jesus stands far above any other, including John's. He is God's son. He's the promised king. Uh, in, in chapter 1, verse 35, it's, it reminds us that he's virgin born. He's the Lord in verse 43 of chapter 1. And the source of salvation, we're going to read about that a little bit today. To him alone, the glory of God belongs. So, uh, what we're going to recognize today, what we're going to be looking at is um, this story of glory in the New Testament. Now let's go to Luke 2. We're going to begin. We're not going to begin with the very first, although I'll refer to it somewhat. We're going to begin with a story that begins with verse 8. Um, Bob, if you don't mind to read for us, start with 8 and go down to 14. Can I stop you right there? And I, we'll pick up right there. Okay, I'm going to try to narrate as we go, all right? What they were doing was a very common experience. You can put that in your blank. This is what shepherds do. They keep watch over their flocks by night, okay? Uh, and through the daytime too, right? So they're there doing their normal job. There's so many things, including the story of Zechariah and Luke 1. There's so many things that happen to people in the New Testament that are fantastic and wonderful while they're doing their normal duty. And that's what these, these men were doing. Okay? But while they were doing that common thing, and this common occurrence of being at night watching over their flocks, a very uncommon event took place. Now that should say the, this uncommon event, my typo there. Okay? This event was accompanied by what I'm going to call illumination. If you and I went to the third chapter, the, sorry, the third verse of the Bible, Genesis 1-3, we would notice that God has been providing light from the beginning. In the beginning was, uh, uh, God created the heavens and the earth. By verse 3 it says, and he said, let there be light, and there was light. Well here, there's another thing going to happen here. There's an angel that shows up on the scene, and when the angel shows up on the scene, uh, he brings with him illumination. Illumination. Now, according to what I, my little research I could do, if this angel is Gabriel, I'm not sure it is, but it might be. Uh, if this is Gabriel, then this is at least the third such appearance of him uh, in, in the New Testament. Now, we read about him in the Old Testament as well, but this is the third appearance of an angel and we think this one might also be Gabriel, although he's not named here. I find that intriguing because he's named in other spots, but he's not named exactly here. And um, what I recognize about this is that um, if this is Gabriel, and I kind of have a tendency to think it is, let's think about him just for a minute. He's mentioned in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. You can read about him in, in Daniel 8.16 where he kind of first appears. 
Uh, Gabriel tells us in Luke 1 that he stands constantly in the presence of God. You remember Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad. He appears to John the Baptist's dad, Zechariah, in that when he's serving in the temple, and Zechariah is afraid like everybody else that, that sees him, and he, he um, declares that, um, that Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth, is going to bear a son and gives him a little bit of a story on what that son's going to be. And Zechariah pushes back a bit and says, how do you know this? And Gabriel says, I'll have you know. I stand in the presence of God. So we know that he is regularly in the throne room of God. Whatever he does, that's part of what he does. He's one of only a couple of angels that's explicitly named in our Bibles. All right? Um, Gabriel and the other one is Michael. Uh, the Bible doesn't call Gabriel an archangel, but church tradition has called him that. Um, that means he's over other angels. And we're going to kind of see that in a little bit. Gabriel kind of looks like a man. You can read about that in Daniel 8 and 9. Um, uh, he kind of looks like a man, uh, but boy, must be much different because his visage always brings some fear. He scares people. When Daniel meets Gabriel, he's frightened out of his mind. He falls on his face. When Gabriel meets Zechariah, his first words are, don't be afraid. When Gabriel shows up to see Mary, his first words are, fear not. Here, he appears on the hillside to the shepherds, and he says, okay, guys, don't, don't worry. We're good. We're good. We're good. Settle down. Okay. Uh, so evidently, when he shows up, even though he's got the appearance somewhat of a man, he's scary. Now, I'm thinking if it's midnight, if it's dark, and uh, it, whether it's a moonlit night or not, but a guy brings, when he shows up, everything kind of lights up around him. I'm thinking that's a little scary, right? So that's part of the, part of the deal here. Uh, now, it's interesting. Every time he comes on the scene, there are two things that happen. Some fear and illumination. I wish Jackie was here today. I thought this week of my favorite Christmas illumination story. You do have your Christmas lights up, don't you? Okay. Uh, I got mine up thanks to Jake being here a couple weeks ago. He helped me put them up. Ted Wolf, years ago, lived next door to the former governor. Okay. Now, I won't mention his name, but he's a popular guy and he's Ted's buddy. Okay, Ted decided one Christmas, and by the way, this former governor was very proud of his, his, his outdoor illumination at his house. You know, the, the lights were really all that. So Ted decided to help him with that a little bit. And so under darkness of night, Ted unplugged every other bulb. Just kind of unscrewed them a little bit. So that when the governor came out the next night, turned on his lights, Something was desperately wrong. Okay? So, um, and, and he starts kind of mess with that. Ted, of course, is probably watching from the living room window laughing his head off and goes back the next night and reverses all that he did the night before. You know, illumination's a big, if you don't know Ted, you got to get to know Ted. Okay? I love that story, and I love the fact that it becomes even better because of who he did it to. But um, uh, anyway... Um, now, by the way, those two men have remained friends even after that. I don't, I don't know if the governor knows it was Ted that did that, so don't tell him. But um, 
What I need to think about every time I see a Christmas light, we, we put up some, some new candles this year, some other lighting and that kind of thing. This time of year, this is not to, for just me to say, oh, isn't that beautiful? This is to remind me that Christmas is the time of the year when light came into a very, very darkened place. Has there ever been a time in our history, as even in our country, where we need some light shined in the darkness? Would somebody go to Isaiah 9 2? I just can't leave this um, ninth verse without talking about this. Isaiah 9, verse 2. A light on those living in the shadow of death. A light has come. Okay, now, Bob, I'm going to come back to you. Would you start now again at verse 10 and read down through 14? Okay, aren't you glad in verse 10 that this angel doesn't come, he's fearsome. I mean, I put a couple of references there to, to um, uh, one thirteen when he appears to Zechariah and then later on to Mary. When he shows up, people get kind of nervous. But he doesn't come in fear, he comes in mercy. He's going to do something, he's going to announce uh, the grace and mercy of God. He's coming in mercy. You don't need to worry about that, he says. Now, his announcement, beginning in verse 11, I, I want us to drill down for a minute of um, who he's talking to here. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Who's his announcement addressed to? At least immediately to the shepherds. I want you to think about that. To the lowliest of the low, the Lord comes. Uh, if you back up to verse 10 where Bob just began, he is given for all. For all. But don't you know, and I don't think this is inappropriate at all, don't you know that those shepherds, having listened to the angel, when they leave there, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute, think, this baby's for me. He's for me. I, I think it's wonderful, the thought here, that, that this little one is given to me. Now, there are several phrases used in verse 10 and 11 that I want to unpack for a minute. It mentions the town of David. It was clear when the angel said, this child is born in the city of David or in the town of David, the shepherds would have known exactly where to go. They were living uh, and working right outside of the, the town of Bethlehem. They're going to know where to go. He's called the Savior. Here, you see that? A son and a Savior. He's called the Savior. Now, one of the things you've got to be aware of is there's some politics involved in this title. 
because there is one in the world when Jesus is born who already thinks he's the Savior. Are you aware of that? His name is Augustus Caesar. His name is really not Augustus to start with. He names himself that. He's Caesar over Rome, and he is the big daddy rabbit, and he thinks it and knows it, and so he names himself the August One. Not cocky at all, right? He would claim, capital S, Savior of the world. But what's the angel saying to these guys? Caesar is not the Savior. He's setting up a political thing here um, just by nature of what's going on in the world. Okay? The town of David, the Savior, he calls him Messiah. When I call the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm acknowledging not only his name, but his title. The promised one. And he calls him capital L, Lord. By the way, um, let's go over to John 19.15. Just go to the right just a little bit. John 19.15. This is the end of Jesus' story. The end of John's gospel. The angel calls Jesus Lord. That's a name only to be used for God. By the way, was anyone else using this name in Jesus' day? Our buddy Augustus, again, was using that name. Lord Augustus Caesar, the Savior. Isn't it interesting? Now, by the time we come to the, to the trial scene before the crucifixion of Jesus, Rome is still involved in the intrigue of this and the politics of this. Somebody read John 19, 15. Out loud to us. Shall I read on, John? Uh, Steve, there's one more. We have no king but Caesar. Isn't it interesting that the Jewish officials at the time of Jesus' death, 33 years later from our story this morning, would say, Caesar is Lord. But that's not what the angel said. Do you mean to tell me that these shepherds are su supposed to to believe that this child is to rival Caesar? I find it interesting, don't you? Now, verse 12, how do they know they'll find the right baby? Now, I, I did a little bit of kind of uh, um, poking around on this particular issue, and I realized that, um, go with me to Ezekiel. Remember, we were in Ezekiel a couple weeks ago. Go to Ezekiel 16. Okay, and we know that... that um, the baby was swaddled. What does that mean? Wrapped in cloths. Okay. Now, okay, maybe that's what they're looking for. You'll find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. Okay. Now look at Ezekiel. I'm going to read Ezekiel, um, what did I tell you? 16.4. 16.4. Somebody read that if you're there. Now, I, I pulled that out of context just to show you uh, there, there's, a, 
this is in the middle of a larger context of a prophecy. But the idea is here, these are the common things that are done when a baby is born. The cord is cut. They're rubbed with salt. I find that one kind of interesting. And they're wrapped in cloths. That's commonly done. So if, um, if they told the shepherds to go to Bethlehem and look for the kid who was wrapped in cloths, that's not going to identify anybody. Every baby's going to be wrapped in cloths, right? If mom's got any sense. What is the unique thing they're looking for? He's in a manger. Now, you know, I've kind of missed this. I, you know, I've heard this all my life. I've heard this story of all my life. I've heard you're going to find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. And I really never thought about, uh, at least not to the extreme that I thought about this week, that the big deal here is that if they're going to find the right baby, he's not just going to be wrapped up and taken care of like a baby's taken care of, but the baby's going to be laying in a feed trough that the cattle use. Now, I know that scene, I've got that picture in my mind, but when they come in, they're not looking for just any baby in Bethlehem. They're looking for the one in the cattle trough. What does that indicate to you? The kind of king he's going to be. If the one who thinks he's Lord calls himself the august one, this one's coming into the world to show us a much different way that leaders ought to lead. And we're all going to want to follow him because of it. Now, um, so the angel gives him this message and uh, it is as if this particular angel's army, now whether this is... Um, whether this is Gabriel or whether it's some other angel, he's in charge of a host of others. And by the way, when the word host is used, and you can put that in your next blank, he is joined by a host of other angels. The word host there doesn't just mean a bunch. You know, when you, boy, there were a host of people here today, right? But we sometimes say that. This is not talking about that. This is a technical word meaning the army of God. So he's joined by an army of angels. Now, what I want you to imagine is a division. How many are in a division, you military guys? Several thousand? Okay, let's think about that, okay? A division of Marines, and they're all singing. I want you to think about that. Behind this one angel, it's as if he can't hold the other guys back anymore. And they begin to sing. And what they're going to sing, what this army of angels is going to sing, is for whom? For those shepherds only, which I find just intriguing. It makes me wonder if the, the glass rattled inside the, the town of Bethlehem. I don't know. But they sang primarily for the soldiers, but about whom? Who are they singing about? They're singing about the one that they're going to find in a manger. Now, I've got to ask this question. For whom is true glory to be found? Or in whom? For whom? Look at 2-7. Just up the page. She gave birth to her firstborn son and she wrapped him in claws and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the end. 
they're going to sing what I would call um, the third hymn in the New Testament hymn book. There have been, every time this angel has showed up, somebody starts singing when he leaves. Okay? Now this time it's his angel buddies are singing. Uh, when he shows up for Zechariah, Zechariah sings after that. When he shows up with Mary, Mary starts singing. And those two are songs. They're New Testament songs. This is the third, and it could be the most important of all of those New Testament canticle songs. Uh, in Latin, this song is called the Gloria. Okay? I was in a concert this week of Christmas music where I heard this song set in three different ways. As a part of it, the angel song was repeated in there. You'll probably hear it today sometime or, or tonight. Uh, part of that song. You'll either, will, somebody will sing, Hark the hairy old angels sing. <laughs> Remember? Glory to the newborn king. That's, that's, the, uh, that's the angel song. Or somebody might sing, Angels we have heard while high. I mean, they... they I didn't get that one quite right. I didn't get that one. In Colorado, they sing that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, and the, remember the song is actually repeated in Latin, Gloria in excelsis Deo, glory to God in the highest. The highest one is being praised here. It's his son in that manger in Bethlehem. And they begin to talk about then the peace of God and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. What you got to know politically is that the Romans claimed to be able to create politically what they would call the Pax Romana. You've heard me talk about it before. The peace of Rome. Pretty proud of it. Every, in every occupied territory, they were really interested in the peace of Rome. What I've got to tell you here is this is not talking about the peace of Rome. This is talking about peace with God for you and me and for every one of these shepherds in this story. Now, let's go on in the story. Bob, I'm going to come back to you. Do you mind to read 15 down to 20? Bob will not read. Would somebody, John, would you read? Thank you. Bob cut out on us. Now, there's an urgency to what the shepherds are about to do. They're going to respond. They're going to, literally, what they're saying here is, we must go. They'll do exactly what this angel has told them to do. Why? Because the angel said, unto you is born this day a son, a savior. So they're going to go. Now, and when they get to the place, they find exactly what the angel told them they would find. Now, I've got to stop here for a minute and think. And I want you to think about this. And I'm not sure I can provide an answer to this. And I'm not sure that you can completely provide an answer to this. But it intrigues me in my thought pattern anyway. I wonder what Caesar was thinking about on this evening. 
I guarantee you, it wasn't about what was going on in the stable in Bethlehem. He's thinking about something he's got to do with the Senate. He's thinking about uh, some other political matter. Or maybe he's thinking about the next party he's getting ready to throw. What were the angels concerned with? What would seem to be a very insignificant detail. That a little couple came in because probably Joseph owned, had inherited a piece of farmland and had to go register for the census so that he could be taxed in the place that was kind of his family origin place. So he had to go from Galilee down to Judea to get this transaction to take place. And, and, and according to the first part of Acts 2, he's doing all this because Caesar said, you've got to go. But you and I know it had much more meaning than that. And I begin to think about what these angels are interested in. And I've got to ask myself on a more regular basis, if, if, if the Lord was reading our newspaper, where is he involved in these stories? It may not be the things I most likely think. Where are the angels hanging out? That's kind of where I want to know. Where has he dispatched a, a legion of angels to just watch over it and make sure everything goes well? I, I kind of want to know that. I'm not sure I can answer that. But it intrigues me to think about that. What does God deem important? It's not probably what the world does. And so, by verse 17, throughout the Gospels, as included at the beginning of the Gospel here, as people see what God is up to, they're compelled to share it. And so they tell the story. And they're amazed. As, as they tell the story, people are amazed. How can a poor infant in a feeding trough be the promised king? Is this one so weak going to challenge the claim of Caesar to be lord and king? Well, I, I'm going to kind of finish it now because we've run out of time. But I want us to think a little bit about um, the story of the baby in the manger being a story of contrasts. All right, we've got in this same story Roman imperial power, but there was another who claimed glory. Caesar ruled most of the world and ordered it to pay him taxes. Some said that true glory in the world was that of Romans, Rome's political and military and economic power. Of such glory and such power, Jesus and his family had none. They were shut out from ordinary living quarters for humans. The newborn Jesus lay in a manger, a feeding trough for animals. Where was true glory to be found? Let me tell you where the angels thought it was to be found. In a swaddled baby, in a borrowed feeding trough, on the backside of a little town called Bethlehem, is where glory reigns where glory belongs is it in the palaces of caesar or is it it is it in a baby's bed makeshift bed in bethlehem you and i know the answer to that question and we also know that we too are invited to sing glory to god in the highest this story is the great contrast the power of the world and the beauty and the glory of the Christ child. You know what? 
I hope that as you think about this, and even as you see outdoor illumination this week, this next couple of weeks, that you'll remember to think a little differently about what really matters and what demands and incites glory in the highest. God bless you. I'll see you next week. Thank you so much.